Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. I keep meaning to tell you this, by the way. When I answer the phone, I say, hello. And every time my mom, my mom's on the other end, she'll go, hello, and welcome to your mother. Like, because <laughs> apparently I say hello the exact same way, no matter what I'm saying. So I get trolled by my you get parents. Tr- <laughs> if they're both on speaker, they'll both do it at me. Wow. Yeah. My so. family doesn't listen to my podcast, so. Sorry, my sister doesn't either, so I can talk shit about her as much as I want. Um, hi, Julia. How hi, are Lord. you? Uh, we're eating a delicious snack right now. A French snack. Yes. An inspiration uh, from a previous episode. Yes. Uh, because of my botched French and my Louise Bourgeois episode and also all the dicks that we saw. Um, Julia decided to Guys, cleanse our palate. this is a dick-free episode this today. Is dick-free. All this right. Is- person free as far as i know as right far as you know yeah uh yeah i decided it's been a while since i did some geology geography esque mm-hmm. topics yes so that Ooh. is what we're doing today are we doing lakes finally <sighs> not lakes oh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's on the list one day <laughs> one day one, one day, day we'll get we'll there to bodies lakes. of water because you did rivers, right? My God. What? Lauren, I did oceans. I did seas. Yes. I did rivers. Yes. And I said, I'm not talking about lakes. No. And then you continually referenced during the rivers episode <laughs> that I was talking about lakes. And I was I not. Can't, I can't. Here's the thing. I'm so sorry. It's not that I'm not paying attention. It's that I have a, I think I have a mental block in my brain, like a physical object in my brain okay. that prevents me from understanding the difference between a lake and a river. I don't know what it is. I mean, I know like inherently, like intellectually in my heart, I know that a lake is a big water and a river is flowy small. (laughs) Well, you'll just have to wait till episode 172 when I cover lakes. That's so far from now. All right, you're doing the opposite, basically. Basically, what we're yeah, about. it's yeah. true. Today I am doing the opposite. Today is just deserts. That's very good. That's a very good. <laughs> the title. title wrote itself. No, it really did. But yeah, it's I'm just acknowledging that. So, ready? Yes. What is a desert? Okay. It's a barren area of landscape where little precipitation occurs and as a result, living conditions are pretty hostile for plant and animal life. Deserts can actually be classified in several different ways uh, by the amount of precipitation that falls, by the prevailing temperature, by the causes of desertification, or by their geographical location. Uh, Thanks to cartoons and movies, we often think of deserts as gigantic, hot, windswept sand dunes, but as we'll get into, deserts don't all quite look like that. Across the world, only about 20% of the Earth's desert is sand, varying from only 2% in North America to 30% in Australia and more than 45% in Central Asia. Where sand does occur, it is usually in large quantities in the form of sand sheets or extensive areas of dunes. About one third of the land surface of the entire world is arid, meaning too dry or barren to support vegetation, or semi-arid, which is dry but having slightly more rain than an arid region or climate. This includes much of the polar 
polar regions where little precipitation occurs and which are sometimes called polar deserts or cold deserts. I didn't even think of cold deserts. Mm -hmm. Now I feel like a fool. Well, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote really did us dirty there. So a little bit about weathering processes. Um, deserts usually have a large diurnal, which is during the day. It's the opposite of nocturnal. Um, a large diurnal and seasonal temperature range with high daytime temperatures falling sharply at night. So the diurnal range may fluctuate anywhere between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius. Uh, that's between 36 and 54 degrees Fahrenheit. And the rock surface experiences even greater temperature differentials. So during the day, the sky is usually clear and most of the sun's radiation reaches the ground. But after the sun sets, the desert cools quickly by radiating heat back into space. So in hot deserts, the temperature during daytime can exceed 45 degrees Celsius or 113 degrees Fahrenheit in summer and plunge below freezing points at night during winter. So such large temperature variations have a destructive effect on the exposed rocky surfaces of the area. These repeated fluctuations put a strain on exposed rock and the flanks of mountains crack and shatter. These fragmented strata, so that's a layer or a series of layers of rock in the ground, uh, slide down into the valleys where they continue to break into pieces due to the relentless sun by day and chill by night. Successive strata are exposed to further weathering and the relief of the internal pressure that has built up within the rocks that have been underground for eons can cause them to shatter. So exfoliation also occurs when the outer surfaces of rock split off into flat flakes, which is caused by the stress put on the rock by repeated expansions and contractions. And that creates fracturing parallel to the original surface. And then there's moisture on these surfaces sometimes. So moisture might be present in the form of dew or mist. And there is groundwater still within the land that may um, be drawn to the surface by evaporation. So then there's a formation of salt crystals that may dislodge rock particles as sand or disintegrate the rocks. And as these desert mountains decay, large areas of shattered rock and rubble occur. So the process continues and the end products are usually either dust or sand. So that, I never even thought about that. That's where sand comes from in a desert because there isn't any water to create erosion. Wow. I know. It's temperature fluctuations. And it's It's just like dealing with like the moisture. Yeah. So what you are thinking of as these big deserts, they just used to be lots of rocks. Oh my God. They used to be big rocks, but now they're tiny rocks. That freaks me out for some reason. Why does that give me like existential panic? Oh boy. (laughs) Oh, get ready. No, no, I'm not ready for this. Wow. Okay. (laughs) All right. So dust in the desert is formed by solidified clay or volcanic deposits, and sand results from the fragmentation of harder granites, limestone, and sandstone. So as the mountains are eroded, more and more sand is created. And at high wind speeds, sand grains are picked up off the surface and blown along the ground in a process known as saltation. So the whirling airborne grains act as sort of a sand blasting mechanism, grinding away solid objects in its path as the kinetic energy of the wind is transferred to the ground. The sand eventually ends up in deposited areas known as sand fields or sand seas or piled up in dunes. And there's also the term erg, E-R-G. That's a vast expanse of sand dunes. Oh. So, so like basically once you have all the sand, the sand is going to it's gonna blast up all this other stuff and also turn it to sand. <laughs> so, so sand begets more sand. Yeah, basically. Okay. All right. Be on the lookout. <laughs> a thing you do have to watch out for are are sand and dust storms. 
Okay. Oh, yes. Yes. So they're natural events that occur in these arid regions where land is not protected by a covering of vegetation. So dust storms usually start in the desert margins. And as the steady wind begins to blow, fine particles lying on the exposed ground begin to vibrate. And at greater wind speeds, some of these particles are lifted into the airstream. And when they land, they strike other particles that might also come up into the air in their uh-huh, turn, starting uh-huh. a chain reaction. So these particles are moving depending on their size, shape, and density in one of three possible ways. There's suspension, saltation, and creep. Um, sandstorms occur with much less frequency than dust storms, and they are often preceded by severe dust storms and occur when the wind velocity increases to a point where it can lift heavier particles. So these grains of sand that are up to about 0.5 millimeters, that's 0.02 inches in diameter, they're jerked into the air, but then they fall back to earth and they, again, they cause these other particles to come up into the air in the mm-hmm. process. So their weight prevents them from being airborne for long and most only travel a distance of a few meters or yards. And the sand streams along the surface of the ground are like a fluid they kind of rise to heights of about a foot off the ground and there have been recordings of sand streams rising as high as two meters that's six foot seven inches off of the ground so in movies and stuff when you usually movies i'm just really picturing like mission impossible ghost protocol yeah um that's not a sandstorm that's a dust storm because a sandstorm the sand can't really get can't really get all that high like when you see the you know, you see in pictures and in movies and stuff like the clouds rolling in in the Middle East. Those are usually just dust storms. So what it sounds like is a sandstorm is a lot like the fluid motion of the sea where there's like waves and stuff. Yeah. Because of the, because of the, the wind picks it up and because they, it then displaces the stuff when it lands and it causes other stuff to come up. It is. It's a sand sea. That's terrifying. Yeah. To think about. You know what else is scary? What? Uh, During a sandstorm, the wind blown sand particles can become electrically charged. (laughs) So. You can get electrocuted by sand? (laughs) Julia. What? (laughs) So typically electric fields like this, they're up to like 80 kilovolts per meter. They can produce sparks and cause interference with telecommunications equipment. They're also very unpleasant for humans. Uh, They cause headaches and nausea. So the electric fields are caused by the collision between airborne particles and by the impacts of saltating sand grains landing on the ground. So, so you're not getting electrocuted, but you do feel like you've got the flu, yeah, apparently? Yeah, like if you're kind of in like a, yeah. you know, if you're in a magnetic field too long. I don't know. I Maybe guess. that's a know. movie that a thing, thing too, right? <laughs> but like, yeah, it just, it just is very unpleasant it, for the yeah. human body to be, to be like immersed in that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, your brain and your heart at the very least are running electrical. electrical yes. Which is, again, very scary once you think about I that. I cannot think about they it for like too long. don't like that either. Yeah. <laughs> I'm basically just a car made of meat. That's it. <laughs> I don't like it. Okay. All right, sand. We're okay. talking about sand. Okay. So deserts, both hot and cold, play a part in moderating the Earth's temperature. This is because they reflect more of the incoming light and their albedo is higher than that of forests or the sea. So albedo, A-L-B-E-D-O, is the measure of the diffuse reflection of solar radiation out of the total solar radiation received by an astronomical body, such as a planet like Earth. So albedo, it's dimensionless and measured on a scale from zero, corresponding to a black body that absorbs all incident radiation, to one, corresponding to a body that reflects all incident radiation. So Steve, I'm sure, knows all about this. And sure. Yeah, he could <laughs> fill in the gaps here. But basically, albedo is an important concept in climatology, astronomy, and environmental management. Okay. So, so it reflects the light and and helps 
regulate the temperature. Of the entire earth. Like, these deserts are actually very important. Oh, my God. (sighs) (sighs) Okay, before I get into some specific deserts, I'm going to talk about some common desert landforms. Great. Just off the top of my head. There's valleys. There are low-lying areas between mountains or hills. Cool. Canyons, also a desert feature. They're narrow valleys with steep sides, usually like very like sheer cliffs there. Yeah. Um, Flat regions are called plains. Um, There's also the mesas. So a mesa is a steep-sided, flat-topped mountain or hill. It's also sometimes called a table hill or a table mountain. And a small mesa is known as a butte. Okay. An oasis is a place in the desert where water comes up to the surface from deep underground. Uh, Trees and plants grow around an oasis and animals come to drink, eat the plants, and find shade. Mm -hmm. Um, FYI, the water in some existing desert oases. Oases? Oases. Right now. Okay. Was rain that fell there about 20,000 years ago. No. What? What? Why am I having existential panic? <laughs> this, uh, that must be very pure water. I mean, it must be delicious. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, mm. so pure. The wateriest water you've ever tasted. It's 20,000 years old. Oh, my God. And in the middle of a desert. But hey. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, Number one largest desert. Mm-hmm. Antarctica. Oh, yeah. Antarctica. Number one. The whole dang thing is a desert. Great. So that's 14 million square kilometers or about 5.5 million square miles. Antarctica is also the coldest desert. Sure. Um, so we haven't done a full episode on Antarctica, but we have talked about it a little in um, some of our previous geography-based episodes, like episode seven, Ain't No Mountains High Enough, episode 25, Take to the Sea, and episode 40, Cry Me a River. All very good. Yep. None of those are lakes. Um <laughs> One, there is one feature of Antarctica that you should know for our purposes today. So the McMurdo Dry Valleys, they are a row of largely snow-free valleys in Antarctica located within Victoria Land west of McMurdo Sound. The dry valleys experience extremely low humidity and surrounding mountains prevent the flow of ice from nearby glaciers. This region is one of the world's most extreme deserts. Although no living organisms have been found in the permafrost here, endolithic photosynthetic bacteria have been found living in the relative moist interiors of rocks and anaerobic bacteria with a metabolism based on iron and sulfur which live under the Taylor Glacier. So the McMurdo Dry Valleys are basically like the driest, one of the driest places on earth. Okay. And they're in Antarctica. The Arctic. Oh. All right. The other side. It's the number two largest. Yeah. That covers Alaska, Canada, Finland, Greenland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, and Sweden. That's about 13,985,000 square kilometers or about 5.4 million square miles. It is a predominantly treeless permafrost. That's, again, permanently frozen underground ice containing tundra. The cultures in the region and the Arctic indigenous peoples have adapted to its cold and extreme conditions. And the word Arctic comes from the Greek word Arcticos, which means near the bear or northern. Oh. So talking about like the Ursa Major um, oh. constellation in the sky that was known as the, you know, as so, the bear. So Arcticos is the closer to the bear. Closer to the bear. Oh, I was thinking like that's where the bears live, closer to the bears. But the sky makes more yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, moving right along. Now we're going to Africa. Ooh, okay. All right. The Sahara Desert is the largest hot desert in the world. And it is the third largest desert overall after Antarctica and the Arctic. Um, Its area of 
9.2 million square kilometers or 3.6 million square miles is comparable to the area of China or the United States. Wow. The name Sahara is derived from a dialectical Arabic word for for desert, Sahara. So basically Sahara Desert is just like... Desert, desert? Desert, desert. Oh, yep. okay. Just like Mississippi River is river, is river, river, river. Is it really? Yeah. Did we learn that in rivers? <laughs> oh, so you don't listen to the podcast no, either. I do. I see. <laughs> we did learn that in rivers. I remember. <laughs> I'm just jagging you. So... The Sahara covers about 31% of all of the continent of Africa. It stretches from the Red Sea in the east and the Mediterranean in the north to the Atlantic Ocean in the west, where the landscape gradually changes from desert to coastal plains. Mm -hmm. To the south, it's bounded by the Sahel, a band of semi-arid tropical savanna around the Niger River Valley and the Sudan region of sub-Saharan Africa. So the Sahara is mainly rocky hamada, or stone plateaus, as well as ergs, which are those Mm -hmm. sand seas, large areas covered with sand dunes, form only a minor part but we're talking about sand dunes that are nearly 600 feet high what huh wind or rare rainfall shape the desert's features there's sand dunes dune fields sand seas stone plateaus gravel plains dry valleys dry lakes and salt flats wow holy cow but it's mostly rocky stone plateaus okay so so this this idea of the sahara as like just a vast expanse like you see in movies Mm -hmm. Of just sand. Of just sand dunes, dunes and camels isn't Is accurate. not accurate. Okay. Uh, because of its location, the Sahara has a significant belt of semi-permanent subtropical warm core high pressure where the air from upper levels of the troposphere tends to sink toward the ground. And the sinking air prevents evaporating water from rising and therefore prevents adiabatic cooling, which makes cloud formation extremely difficult to nearly impossible. So the permanent state of having no clouds makes Mm. for unhindered light and thermal radiation. So the stability of the atmosphere above the desert prevents any convective overturning, making rainfall virtually non-existent. And basically as a result, the weather tends to be sunny, dry, and stable with a minimal chance of rainfall. And again, this is the hottest region in the world. The world's highest officially recorded average daily high temperature was 47 degrees Celsius or 116.6 degrees Fahrenheit in a remote desert town in the Algerian desert called Bernu. Basically, only Death Valley, California rivals it. Wow. Sand and ground temperatures are even more extreme. So during daytime, the sand temperature is extremely high. The sand alone can reach 80 degrees Celsius or 176 degrees Fahrenheit. No, that's too Or hot. more. So you're not talking. So when they talk about measuring temperature, you're talking about like the air temperature. Sure, and yeah. then you also have to worry about like the, the rocks and the in the sand and the ground. That's two different temperatures. Yeah. Because obviously like the, you know, the rocks and the sand are absorbing the light mm-hmm. and making it just like you can't walk on it. Yeah. You can't take your your animals out there like animals can't live there because they can't walk on the ground you know exactly so yeah oh my gosh this is too hot sahara i'm surprised i mean maybe we'll get to it eventually but uh, i'm surprised that the mojave desert is the rival in terms of heat when it's not australia i always thought of australia as being hotter than the united states oh girl we'll talk about all all of this all right all right all right a little bit more on the Sahara. So important cities located in the Sahara include Nukachot, which is the capital of Mauritania, Alued in Algeria, Timbuktu in Mali, Agade in Niger, Ghat in Libya, and Faya Lajar in Chad. 
So for several hundred thousand years, the Sahara has alternated between desert and savanna grassland in a 41,000 year cycle caused by the precession of the Earth's axis as it rotates around the sun, which changes the location of what they call the North African monsoon. Uh, the next time that that area is expected to become green is in about 15,000 years. So if you make it, to, if your head gets frozen in a cryogenic yeah, chamber and yeah. makes it to 17,000 AD, um, the Sahara Desert won't be like that anymore. Oh, that's too bad. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Deal with your travel plans now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, also, there is an annual ultra marathon held no. each year in the Sahara Desert. Boo! Boo! Called the <laughs> Marathon de Sable. It is a six-day, 156-mile trek through the sands, considered no. to be the toughest foot race on the planet. Uh, it, you, you think? What? Why would you do that? On purpose. Why? On purpose. These people are like, you know what? Even though the ground is 176 degrees, I'm going to go run. I'm going to go run. I'm going to go run on the sand. You know, they're just grad students. You know, they're just a bunch (laughs) of grad students. Thrill seekers. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, I don't want to work on my dissertation. Instead, I'm going to conquer the Sahara I'm gonna Desert. Go, I'm going to go run. I'm going to go to run for six days in the oh Sahara Desert. Oh my God. That's so stupid. Just live your life. Why do you need to conquer things? <laughs> Just, you know, like, why can't, why do you need to put yourself through horrifying torture just to be like, I lived? Like, you know what else it makes you live? Just hanging out on your couch and eating a bowl of ice cream while it's perched on your chest. Yes, if you haven't heard by now, Lauren and I decided the opposite of running a 5K is laying on your couch with a bowl of melted ice cream on your chest while you watch television and you just drinking the melted ice cream from the bowl. It is the least amount of effort you could possibly have. Of the spectrum of effort, 5K is at one end, lying on your couch with a melted bowl of ice cream being tipped gently into your mouth while you watch Arrested Development is on the other. (laughs) So uh, you can take that, that to the bank. That was Lauren's corner. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Go ahead, please. <laughs> These dumb dumbs run through the desert. Keep going. Also in Africa. <laughs> Moving on to the next one. The Kalahari Desert. It's large, semi-arid, sandy savanna in southern Africa, extending for 900,000 square kilometers or 350,000 square miles. It covers much of Botswana and parts of Namibia and regions of South Africa. Kalahari is derived from the Swana word Kagala, meaning the great thirst, or Kagalagadi, meaning a waterless place. The Kalahari has vast areas covered by red sand without any permanent surface water. A semi-desert with huge tracts of excellent grazing after good rains, the Kalahari supports more animals and plants than a true desert, such as the Namib Desert to the west. There are small amounts of rainfall and the summer temperature is very high. The dry season lasts eight months or more and the wet season typically from one month to four months, depending on location. Um, And Windhoek, the capital of Namibia, is actually in the Kalahari Basin. Oh, wow. Nearby, we have the Namib Desert. So that's a coastal desert in southern Africa. The name Namib is of the Khoikhoi Goab origin, meaning vast place. According to the broadest definition, the Namib stretches for more than 2,000 kilometers or 1,200 miles along the Atlantic coasts of Angola, Namibia, and South Africa, extending southward from the Karanjamba River in Angola through Namibia to the Olifants River in Western Cape, South Africa. Wow. The Namib's northernmost portion, which extends 280 miles from the Angola-Namibia border, is known as Mosamadis Desert, while its southern portion approaches the neighboring Kalahari Desert. 
since it's endured arid or semi-arid conditions for roughly 55 to 80 million years, the Namib is considered the oldest desert in the world and contains some of the world's driest regions with only Western South America's Atacama Desert to challenge it for age and aridity benchmarks. So the Namib is almost completely uninhabited by humans, except for several small settlements and indigenous pastoral groups. Owing to its antiquity, the Namib may be home to more endemic species than any other desert in the world. Most of the desert wildlife is arthropods and other small animals that live on little water. The larger animals inhabit the northern regions. And near the coast, the cold ocean water is rich in fishery resources and supports populations of brown fur seals and shorebirds, which serve as prey for the skeleton coast lions. So so just so I'm clear. Uh So of the African deserts, Mm -hmm. so far, I guess. Sahara is the biggest. Sahara is the biggest and the hottest. Yes. And Namib is the oldest. Yes. Like in the world. Yeah. So um, the Namib Desert is on kind of like the western coast of the southern part of Africa. And then the Kalahari Desert is a little more inland. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm And southern Namib comprises a vast dune sea with some of the tallest and most spectacular dunes of the world, ranging in color from pink to vivid orange. In the Sosusle area, several dunes are nearly a thousand feet high. Oh, my God. So it sounds like this is a great place to go take pictures. Oh, absolutely. You don't if you're live an there. influencer, mm-hmm. you'll die of thirst. But what a Yay. photo. Oh, my God. So yeah. many likes. <laughs> um, and something I've noticed through a lot of this is most of the deserts tend to be on more like the left side of a continent. Okay. Just because I guess that's how the weather works. Oh, that's how the weather cool. and the geography works. It's interesting to think that's about. Weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, considering like if Europe and Asia are together, so we'll we'll cover those together. So um, the Arabian Desert in Asia stretches from Yemen to the Persian Gulf and Oman and Jordan and Iraq. It occupies most of the Arabian Peninsula with an area of about 900,000 square miles. Um, So just to uh, refresh, the Arabian Peninsula consists of Yemen, Oman, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Um, the Arabian desert is the fifth largest desert in the world and the largest in Asia at its center is the Rubal Kali, which in English translates to the empty quarter. Um, this is the largest continuous body of sand in the world. The Rubal Kali, the empty quarter in the Arabian desert, largest continuous body of sand in the world. This extreme environment features everything from red dunes to deadly quicksand. (gasps) Quicksand. Yeah. It shows up in the Arabian desert. Oh my God. Um, The Arabian Desert has a subtropical hot desert climate, which is close to that of the Sahara Desert. And in fact, the Arabian Desert is an extension of the Sahara over the Arabian Peninsula. Okay. So even though there's like a body of water that separates them, it's still technically part of the same, you know, same formation. So the climate is mainly hot and dry with plenty of sunshine throughout the year. The rainfall amount is generally around 100 millimeters and the driest areas can achieve between 30 and 40 millimeters of annual rain. So by the way, um, one millimeter is 0.39 inches. So 100 millimeters is 3.9 inches. So, so not a lot. The, the highest they usually get is 100 millimeters, and that's 3.9 inches of rain. To put that into perspective, Rochester gets about 34 inches of rain annually, plus 99 inches of snow. Oh, man. That's... I'm not looking forward to that. Can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know it's July, but still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a lot of rain. No. Oh, my God. Yep. It's so dry. I uh, also have to talk about the Gobi Desert. 
So that is the large desert and brushland region in Asia. It covers parts of northern and northeastern China and also of southern Mongolia. The Gobi is a rain shadow desert that's formed by the Tibetan Plateau blocking precipitation from the Indian Ocean from reaching the Gobi Territory. Much of the Gobi is not sandy but has exposed bare rock. And the Gobi is notable in history as part of the Great Mongol Empire and is the location of several important cities along the Silk Road. The Gobi is overall a cold desert with frost and occasionally snow occurring on its dunes. Besides being quite far north, it is also located on a plateau roughly three to 5,000 feet above sea level, which contributes to its low temperatures. An average of approximately 194 millimeters, that's 7.6 inches of rain, falls annually in the Gobi. Additional moisture reaches parts of the Gobi in winter as snow is blown by the wind from the Siberian steppes. And the climate of the Gobi is one of extremes, combined with rapid changes of temperature as much as 35 degrees Celsius or 63 three degrees Fahrenheit in a day. Wow. Yeah. In the Gobi in Mongolia, the first dinosaur eggs were first discovered in 1923. Yeah. And to date, paleontologists are still finding important fossils in the surrounding areas. Um, Just a quick sidebar. Um, Of all the different kinds of dinosaurs that have been discovered, most have come from just six countries. China, Argentina, the United States, Mongolia, Canada, and England. What? So like of the big discoveries, they've been like, and here's a Tyrannosaurus Rex and here's a Velociraptor. I don't know. I'm just naming my things. They were first discovered in one of these six countries. But paleontologists have had success finding fossils in in a couple of other countries like South Africa and Madagascar and India. Sure. Yeah. Why only six? I don't know. What is it about those six? Ooh. Was there a... Oh my God. Maybe, Maybe because these... I mean most of the ones I named are very big. So maybe it's like if, if they had lived in like China. Yeah. Statistically. Yeah. It's a big country. It's, it's about the same size as the United States, as we mentioned earlier. Um, there's, it's not completely full of people. There is land for people to learn, you know, dig up up and yeah, that's true. That's true. And it all used to be one big Mm landmass panacea, if you will. Oh yes. Yeah. um, Don't worry. I, you, Paid attention to that to that video. Uh, we also have the Syrian desert. It's also known as the Syrian steppe, the Jordanian steppe, or the Badia. It's a region of, of uh, desert, semi-desert, and steppe covering 500,000 square kilometers or 200,000 square miles of the Middle East, including parts of southeastern Syria, northeastern Jordan, northern Saudi Arabia, and western Iraq. It accounts for 85% of the land area of Jordan and 55% of Syria. To the south, it borders and merges into the Arabian desert. The land is open, rocky, or gravelly desert pavement cut with occasional wadis, or dry riverbed valleys. So the Syrian desert was historically inhabited by Bedouin tribes, and many tribes still remain in the region. Their members living mainly in towns and settlements built near oases. Some Bedouins still maintain their traditional way of life in the desert. Um, Sephitic inscriptions, proto Arabic texts written by literate Bedouin are found throughout the Syrian desert, and these date from the 1st century BC to the 4th century AD. One of the most important ancient settlements in the Syrian desert is Palmyra. It was first mentioned in the 2nd millennium BC. The city was an important trading center in Roman times, and its people were renowned merchants who took advantage of its strategic position on the Silk Road, linking the Far East to the Mediterranean. And they um, they taxed passing caravans, mm-hmm. establishing colonies on the Silk Road, and trading in the rare commodities from the Far East bringing enormous wealth to their city. So Palmyra is a very important city from the Syrian desert. And is an unimportant town in New York State. Yeah, it's very funny, like, as we've been learning more about, like, 
more ancient, you know, ancient history and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then seeing like the names and how they've like actually pop up a lot in in the U.S. It's yeah, it's town crazy. Names, yeah, it's very funny. Like especially with um a lot of the Greek names and stuff like yes. that. There's a ton of those around here in, in yeah, Rochester, everywhere. Utica, Syracuse, Greece. Yeah, yeah. Webster, obviously the ancient city of Webster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, the Negev Desert, that's N-E-G-E-V. It covers more than half of Israel. Um, it's about 4,700 square miles and at least 55% of the country's land area. It forms an inverted triangle shape whose western side is contiguous with the desert of the Sinai Peninsula and whose eastern border is the Arabah Valley. The origin of the word Negev is from the Hebrew word denoting dry. The Negev is a rocky desert and it's a melange of brown, rocky, dusty mountains interrupted by wadis, those dry riverbeds, and deep craters. The region's largest city and administrative capital is Beersheba. I am only including this because for some unknown reason, it shows up on Jeopardy all the goddamn time. Really? Beersheba? No, Negev Desert. Oh, really? Yeah. It's always like, this is the desert of Israel. This is the place where the capital is Beersheba. This is (laughs) like... Really? I have, oh my gosh. I don't understand. I went through J Archive and this thing showed up like 10 times. That's crazy. I was like, I've never heard of the Negev Desert, but. I could see you know. it being a good, again, crossword puzzle answer. N E G E V. Yeah, because of all the vowels and the weird V at the end. Mm-hmm. Perfect. But yeah, for maybe um, maybe one of the writers for Jeopardy just really loves just that desert. Really loves it. They're like actually from the Israeli yeah. tourism board. Exactly. They're like, They're just if planning. I stick this in here enough, people are going <laughs> to want to come and see it. Yes, come to Beersheba. Beautiful Beersheba. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of a desert. Doesn't matter. Nope. Still beautiful. Look at this sand. Right? Sand? Did you mention sand? Probably sand. <laughs> Great. Um, and then also with Eurasia, we have the highlands of Iceland. So this mm. is also a desert. It's a sparsely inhabited plateau that covers most of the interior of Iceland. Um, they're situated about 1,300 to 1,600 feet above sea level and are mostly an uninhabitable volcanic desert because the water that falls as rain or snow infiltrates so quickly into the ground that it is unavailable for plant growth. This results largely in a surface of gray, black, or brown earth, lava, and volcanic ashes. Mm. Um, The highlands can be crossed only during the Icelandic summer, and for the rest of the year, the highland roads are closed. Many large glaciers, such as Vatnajökull, Langjökull, and Hofsjökull, are also part of the Icelandic highlands. Uh, By the way, glaciers have names. (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I like Bill and Richard. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, coming back to America... Doing with both the Americas together. So um, the first and the largest is the Great Basin Desert. So that's a temperate desert with hot, dry summers and snowy winters. And it is the largest desert in North America. It spans a large part of the state of Nevada and extends into western Utah, eastern California, and Idaho. The biological communities of the Great Basin Desert vary according to altitude, from low, salty, dry lakes up through rolling sage-rich valleys to juniper forests. The significant variation between valleys and peaks has created a variety of habitat niches, which has in turn led to many small, isolated populations of genetically unique plant and animal species throughout the region. The ecology of the desert varies across geography. Um... And the desert's high elevation and location between mountain ranges influences regional climate. So the desert formed by the rain shadow of the Sierra Nevada that blocks moisture from the Pacific Ocean, and then the Rocky Mountains create a barrier effect that restricts moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. So okay. like all of these, a lot of these deserts were created because of the mountains and stuff couldn't, you know, the rain yeah. couldn't get over to it. 
So different locations in the desert have different amounts of precipitation depending on the strength of these rain shadows. And on any given day, the weather across the Great Basin Desert is variable. The region is extremely mountainous and the temperatures vary depending on the elevation. Um, in general, temperature decreases 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit for every 1,000 feet gained in elevation. So this translates to as much as a 30 degree Fahrenheit or 17 degrees Celsius difference wow. between mountain tops and valley floors on the same day at the same time. Oh my gosh. Um, so in the heat of the summer, this difference can be even more pronounced and with some exceptions wind generally increases with elevation or altitude and though so their strong winds are often encountered on the mountaintops and ridges wow close by the mojave desert which mm. is the driest desert in north america okay it's located in the southwestern u.s primarily within southeastern california and southern nevada its boundaries are generally noted by the presence of joshua trees which are native only to the mojave desert and are considered an indicator species and it's believed to support an additional about 2,000 species of plants mm. uh, the central part of the desert is sparsely populated while its peripheries support large communities such as las vegas oh i was gonna Barstow, say the mormons lancaster <laughs> palmdale uh victorville and st george Death Valley yes. is situated here between the Great Basin and the Mojave Deserts. Death okay. Valley is the hottest, driest, and lowest national park in the United States. It's uh, 282 feet below sea level. On the afternoon of July 10th, 1913, the United States Weather Bureau recorded a high temperature of 134 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, for everyone else, that's 56.7 degrees Celsius. Uh at Furnace Creek in Death Valley. This temperature stands as the highest ambient air temperature ever recorded at the surface of the earth. That is so friggin' hot. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. Because when we were in Las Vegas, we were like, oh, I, the whole, the air feels like I opened an oven. Yes. I am, I am inside of an yeah. oven. It was probably like 100 degrees when we yeah. were there. Yep. I was joking that it was like 120, but it was probably 100 degrees. I mean, to us, it felt like 120, and our truth is valid. So, (laughs) but that 136 degrees, that's out of control. So, yeah, Death Valley. Let's not go there. Uh, It's an example of a graben, which is a down-dropped block of land between two mountain ranges. It is super dry because it sits in the rain shadow of four major mountain ranges. Um so the highest surface temperature ever recorded in Death Valley was 201.0 no. degrees Fahrenheit. That's 93.9 degrees Celsius on July 15th, 1972, also at Furnace Creek. The highest ground surface temperature ever recorded on the earth. You could get, <laughs> if you touched that, like if you touched yeah. the ground, you would have third degree burns exactly. instantaneously. Yeah. By the way, side note. Can I tell you how much I love the term rain shadow? Rain shadow. If I had to go into uh, witness protection, witness protection, I my name would be I would be Alice Rain Shadow. You could still wear all your drapey yes. cardigans. Oh man, I could keep all of my my loose kimonos and cardigans. Oh, I could really lean into that art teacher life. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I would get a nose piercing and like several tattoos. I would be much cooler than I am now. (laughs) I love it. Uh, So yeah, this temperature, again, it was the highest ground surface temperature ever recorded on earth. And it was the only recorded surface temperature of above 200 degrees Fahrenheit on earth. On earth? Yeah. On the earth. On the whole earth. On the whole earth. What? That's crazy. That's too hot. It, uh, 
Sidebar for our Triviality Brothers, Death Valley serves as the fictional hometown of WWE legend, The Undertaker. <laughs> That's funny. I like it. The fictional hometown. Yeah. Oh, The yeah. Undertaker, who hails from Death Valley, California. The, you know what? Wrestling is so quaint. <laughs> you know, it's just so cute. It's like, oh, you guys are just a bunch of boys just, just playing games. Yeah. Beating on each other. <laughs> A few more. Um, So we have the Sonoran Desert. That's large parts of southwestern U.S. and Arizona and California and of northwestern Mexico in Sonora, Baja California, and Baja California Sur. The Sonoran Desert is the hottest desert in Mexico. Um, Because it's so close to the ocean, the Sonoran Desert receives more rain than any other desert, about 10 to 14 inches a year. Um, And because it's a desert that, hey, actually gets wet, the Sonoran Desert has about 2,500 different native plant species, more than any other desert. Nearby, the Chihuahua Desert. It covers parts of northern Mexico and the southwestern United States. It occupies much of West Texas, parts of the middle and lower Rio Grande Valley, and the lower Pecos Valley in New Mexico, as well as a portion of southeastern Arizona and the central and northern portions of the Mexican Plateau. The Chihuahua Desert is the third largest desert of the Western Hemisphere and the second largest in North America after the Great Basin Desert. It's mainly a rain shadow desert because the two main mountain ranges covering it, the Sierra Madre Occidental to the west and the Sierra Madre Oriental to the east block most moisture from the Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. There are a few urban areas within the desert. The largest is Ciudad Juarez with with almost 2 million inhabitants, as well as Chihuahua, Saltillo, and Torreon, and the U.S. cities of Albuquerque and El Paso are part of of the Chihuahua. Oh, okay. The Atacama Desert, one of the driest places in the world. It's the strip of land on the Pacific coast west of the Andes Mountains, um, that's southern Peru and northern Chile. The desert owes its extreme aridity to a constant temperature inversion due to the cool, north-flowing Humboldt Ocean Current and to the presence of the strong Pacific anticyclone. This is the only true desert to receive less precipitation than the polar deserts. There are parts of the Atacama Desert where no rain has ever been recorded, and scientists believe portions of the region have been in an extreme desert state for 40 million years, longer than any other place on Earth. What? Yeah. No rain. There are parts where no rain has ever Ever been recorded. No water Mm -hmm. at all. Yep. But more than 1 million people live there. What? Why? Um, (laughs) (laughs) In a region about 60 miles south of Antofagasta, which averages about 10,000 feet in elevation, the soil has been compared to that of Mars. And NASA does a lot of research on this soil a lot. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet they do. Mm -hmm. The Atacama is also a testing site for the NASA-funded Earth-Mars Cave Detection Program. So, like... Because of the because of how this is situated, it's so high up. They don't get any water. Mm-hmm. It really is able to mimic what scientists what? have have realized is the is the makeup of Mars. Yeah. So they're doing a lot of research down there. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah. Also in South America, the Patagonian Desert. So it is the largest in the in the Americas in total. Uh-huh. It's also known as the Patagonian Steep or the Magellanic Steep. It is the largest desert in Argentina and the eighth largest in the world by area, occupying more than 260,000 square miles. It's located primarily in Argentina with small parts in Chile, bounded by the Andes to the west and the Atlantic Ocean to the east in the region of Patagonia in southern Argentina. Um, it's a large cold winter desert where the temperature rarely exceeds 12 degrees Celsius and averages just three degrees celsius so that's uh like never gets warmer than 53 degrees fahrenheit and um averages about 37 degrees fahrenheit 
it's not as bad as no, it could have been. Yeah. Um, the region experiences about seven months of winter and five months of summer. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like us. Yeah. Um, frost is not uncommon in the desert, but due to the very dry condition year round, snow is rare. The Andes Mountains to the desert's west are the primary reason for the Patagonian desert status, since they prevent the westerly flow of moisture from the southern Pacific from reaching inland. And this creates a rain shadow that accounts for the formation of the desert and is why, despite approximately half of the desert being only about 200 miles from the ocean, such a large desert is found in the region. Hmm. Okay. And then finally, Australia. Um, They kind of consider... Like, according to what I've read, they consider it, like, to be one thing. The Australian desert. So the Australian desert is the number four largest desert in the world. Yeah. It's subtropical. It's about 2.7 million square kilometers or 1 million square miles of Australia. That's about 18% of Australian mainland. Oh, wow. And it's primarily the western plateau and the interior lowlands of the country. Now, they have split it up into a couple of different ones. I'll just talk about two of them here. So the Great Victoria Desert is the largest desert on its own in Australia. It's located in Western and South Australia. And it consists of many small sand hills, grassland plains, areas with closely packed surfaces of pebbles called desert pavement or gibber plains, as well as salt lakes. It's the part of Australia with the most populous and most healthy indigenous population. In 1875, British explorer Ernest Giles became the first European to cross the desert, and he named it after the then reigning British monarch, Queen Victoria. Sure. Well, next, you have the Gibson Desert, which is located in central western Australia. It's between the saline Lake Disappointment and Lake McDonald along the Tropic of Capricorn, south of the Great Sandy Desert and east of the Little Sandy Desert. It was named by explorer Ernest Giles after a member of his party, Alfred Gibson, who became lost and presumably died in this desert (laughs) during an expedition in 1874. Oh, no. They're like, don't worry. We're going to name it this desert after you. Uh, another quick sidebar. Australia, we we haven't talked a lot about Australia no. other than like I think like the weird creatures episode. Sure, and like yeah. Maybe a couple of things here and there. But um, for, for our listeners who are not in Australia, Australia has six states. They're New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, and Western Australia. And they have two major mainland territories, the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory. So these two territories basically function as states, except that the Commonwealth Parliament has the power to modify or repeal any legislation passed by the territory parliaments. So basically... uh, Going clockwise here. So if you start at the 9 o'clock position of your clock, you have Western Australia, then going up the Northern Territory, Queensland, New South Wales, Australian Capital Territory, uh, Victoria, Tasmania, and it has uh, basically South Australia at like the six o'clock position of a clock. So okay. if you go from nine o'clock to six o'clock in that order, that that's order. where they are. Okay. So what the heck does grow in the desert? Because I guess some stuff does. Oh, okay. Some stuff has to grow Dry in the grasses, desert. Dry grasses, I'm imagining. So plants and animals living in the desert need special adaptations to survive in their harsh environment, obviously. Sure. So plants tend to be tough and wiry with small or no leaves, water-resistant cuticles, and often spines to deter um, people that are, you know, plants, animals that are going to eat them. Sure. So some annual plants germinate, bloom, and die in the course of a few weeks after rainfall, while others um, survive for years and have deep root systems able to tap underground moisture. Many desert plants have reduced the size of their leaves or been in them altogether. 
So cacti are desert specialists, and in most species, the leaves have been dispersed with and the chlorophyll displaced into the trunks, the cellular structure of which has been modified to allow them to store water. So when the rain falls, water is rapidly absorbed by the shallow roots and retained to allow them to survive until the next downpour, which may be months or years away. Mm -hmm. The saguaro cacti can grow to be over 40 feet tall, and it is the largest cactus species in the U.S. Um, The saguaro is native to the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, as well as the Mexican state of Sonora. The saguaro blossom is also the state wildflower of Arizona. Oh. Its scientific name, Carnegieia gigantea, is given in honor of Andrew Carnegie, whose Carnegie Institution established the Desert Botanical Laboratory in Tucson, Arizona in 1903. Oh. In 1994, Saguaro National Park near Tucson, Arizona, was designated to help protect the species and its habitat. Saguaros have a relatively long lifespan, often exceeding 150 years. Um, they So it starts out as kind of like a trunk, and they might grow their first sidearm anytime from 75 to 100 years of age, but some never grow any arms. Aww. A saguaro without arms is called a spear. <laughs> I don't know why I'm, I was yeah. so charmed by that, yeah. but that was really cute. Arms are developed to increase the plant's reproductive capacity as more apices or tips where reproductive tissue can grow lead to more flowers and fruit. Sure. Saguaros have an intricate root system where a single tap root goes straight down about five feet to access water that's stored deep underground. But most of its roots extend like a maze about three inches under the surface to oh, easily wow. collect rainwater. A full-grown saguaro cactus can hold as much as 200 gallons or 760 liters of water and weigh more than a ton. Oh, wow. These things so these are, these are, are big boys. They're hefty, hefty mm-hmm. boys. Another plant is the creosote bush. Mm. So that's the dominant plant species on gravelly and occasionally sandy soils in valley areas, especially within the Chihuahuan Desert. It's an evergreen shrub that bears resinous dark green leaves and exhibits a characteristic odor of creosote from which the common name derives. As the creosote bush grows older, its oldest branches eventually die and the crown splits into several different crowns. And this normally happens when the plant is about 30 to 90 years old. So eventually the old crown dies and the new one becomes a clonal colony from the previous plant composed of many separate stem crowns all from the same seed. So the king clone creosote ring is one of the oldest living organisms on earth. Oh, I'm freaked out. It has been alive an estimated 11,700 years in the central Mojave Desert near present-day Lucerne Valley, California. This single clonal colony plant of L. tridentata reaches up to 67 feet in diameter with wow. an average distance with an average diameter of 54 feet. Holy cow. So basically like this plant grew 12,000 years ago and then it it died and it kind of scattered and then it reseeded. It's like it's a plant clone of itself and it keeps like, you know, kind of coming back to life. It's like the Terminator of plants or something. It is the Terminator. I guess I don't really understand what Terminator is, but it sounded good to me. Do you remember when we saw the Terminator uh, preview? (laughs) Oh, we were we went to see Rocket Man. It's very good. I highly recommend. Yeah. But they had the Terminator uh, preview, and we didn't know what it was. Yeah. And you leaned over to me. You were like, "What is this?" And then all of a sudden, there was Linda <laughs> Hamilton in all of her like muscular, yeah. sinuous glory. And I was like, "Holy shit! Linda Hamilton looks amazing! <laughs> it's a Terminator! It's a Terminator! It looks good. I'm gonna go see it. Great. Anyway, sorry. It's all right. Terminator. Uh, plant. The King Clone Creosote Ring. King Clone Creosote Ring. One more plant, the tumbleweed. 
Oh, yeah. So a tumbleweed actually isn't one specific plant. It's the above ground part of a number of species of plants that once they're mature and dry, detaches from their root or stem and rolls along due to the force of the wind. Sure. These also tend to disperse seeds as they roll along. Um, So the tumbleweed's association with Western film genre has led to a highly symbolic meaning in visual media, uh, representing... Locations that are desolate, dry, or humorless with few or no occupants. Yeah. It's just kind of funny. We yeah. all, There's usually like a whistle involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to prove that there's nobody around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, animals adapted to live in deserts are called xerocoles. That's X-E-R-O-C-O-L-E-S. It's from the Greek xeros for dry and from the Latin colare meaning to inhabit. Animals need to keep cool and find enough food and water to survive, obviously. And so many of the desert animals are nocturnal and stay in the shade or underground during the heat of the day. They tend to be efficient at conserving water, extracting most of their needs from their food and concentrating their own urine. Some animals (laughs) remain in a state of dormancy for long periods, ready to become active again during the rare rainfall. And they then reproduce rapidly while conditions are favorable before returning to dormancy. Um, so one animal is the fennec fox. Oh, it's okay. found in the Sahara of North Africa as well as the Sinai Peninsula and um, the Arabian Desert. Its most distinctive feature is its unusually large ears, which also serve to dissipate heat. If you've ever seen a picture of They're these guys, you cute. can't ever forget them. Its name comes from the Berber Arabic word fanak, meaning fox. Um, so again, the really fox, double fox. double up. The fennec is the smallest species of canid, the dog family. Its coat, ears, and kidney functions have adapted to high temperature, low water, desert environments. And also its hearing is sensitive enough to hear prey moving underground. It mainly eats insects, small mammals, and birds. They have extra fur on the soles of their feet to give it traction and protect it from the hot sand. Oh, it's hot. It's so hot there. Desert tortoises... Uh, there are two species of tortoise native to the Mojave and Sonoran deserts of the southwestern U.S. and northwestern Mexico. Uh, the desert tortoise lives about 50 to 80 years. It grows slowly and generally has a low reproductive rate. Spends most of its time in burrows, rock shelters, and pallets to regulate body temperature and reduce water loss. Um, and desert tortoises are the most active after seasonal rains, and they are inactive most of the year, which is how they survive. Yeah. And finally, camels. Oh. There are three surviving species of camel. The one-humped dromedary makes up about 94% of the world's camel population, and the two-humped Bactrian camel makes up the remainder. Okay. The wild Bactrian camel is a separate species and is now critically endangered. The dromedary, also known as the Arabian camel, inhabits the Middle East and Horn of Africa, while the Bactrian inhabits Central Asia, including the historical region of Bactria, which was a historical Iranian region in Central Asia. Uh, And the critically endangered wild Bactrian is found only in remote areas of northwest China and Mongolia. Oh, wow. So like 94% of the camels are... um, are the Arabian camel. The Uh two-humped Bactrian camel is like 5.9% and then like that last like 0.1% are wild Bactrian camels. And they're mostly domesticated at this point, I think? Um... Yeah. Right? Yeah. The wild ones are the only ones that have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Wow. I feel thirsty? Yeah. So for some reason... You should. Take a big gulp of water and... I feel thank the Lord above that we don't live in any of these places. I feel very hyper aware of time and space. Uh, but that was excellent. I learned a lot. Thank you, Julia. Great. I'm so glad. I'm I am waiting in anticipation for what the top the quiz topic is going to be. Okay. okay. I'm really hoping that it's what I think it is. Okay. Well, this quiz is called Desert Rose. It's a quiz on very old plants and things that sting. 
I was so hoping it was going to be desserts. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been too easy. I know. That's why. All right. Question one. Basically older than dirt, a great basin bristlecone pine is the oldest known tree in the world. What is the name of this famous tree, which is also the same as the longest living figure in the Bible, or a wine bottle capable of holding six liters? Question two. The eighth astrological sign in the zodiac. The sun transits this sign on average from October 23rd to November 22nd. What is the sign for this thing that stings? Question three. Great Scott. The oldest angiosperm or fruiting plant ever documented died in 2011 in Zimbabwe at age 2,450. Scientifically, this long-lived native African tree species is an Andinsonia digitata, but it's also known as the upside-down tree or the monkey bread tree. By which other common name do we call this kind of tree? Question four. Make sure you stay away from the lion's mane, cannonball, and for the love of God, the irukanji, or you'll be in a real jam. What kinds of things that sting are they? Question five. The oldest known living human planted tree in the world is a sacred fig, Ficus religiosa, called the Jaya Srimati Bodhi, planted in 288 BC and said to be the southern branch from the tree in India under which Lord Buddha attained enlightenment. This tree is located in what country whose flag depicts a gold lion with a sword? Question six. Not only is it a cartilaginous fish, which is now the target of a grudge, but it's the name of a controversial cellular phone surveillance device manufactured by Harris Corporation. What's this thing that stings? Question seven. The single largest living organism is a clonal colony of quaking aspen trees with a root system estimated to be more than 80,000 years old. Located in South Central Utah, not South Central China, what is the five-letter name of this largest, oldest, and heaviest living organism in the world? Question eight, a real stinging true or false question. The queen honeybee does not have a stinger. Question nine, most Americans know that our oldest and biggest trees are located in Sequoia National Park, California, and the president tree happens to be the oldest known living sequoia there. Dedicated with this moniker in 1923, for which recently deceased person was this tree named? And finally, question 10. One of the few species of venomous mammals, the male version of this strange creature, has a spur on its hind foot that delivers a venom capable of causing severe pain to humans. What is this thing that stings? I'll give you about a minute to think and we'll be back with your answers. I am disappointed that it's not desserts, but I'm feeling okay. I think Great. I'm feeling okay. 
All right, question one. Basically older than dirt, a great basin bristlecone pine is the oldest known tree in the world. What is the name of this famous tree, which is also the name of the longest living figure in the Bible, or a wine bottle capable of holding six liters? That's Methuselah. It is Methuselah. This great basin bristlecone pine is estimated to be 4,850 years old. Wow. The Methuselah is located between 9,500 and 9,800 feet above sea level in the Methuselah Grove in the ancient bristlecone pine forest within the Inyo National Forest. Its exact location has never been publicly disclosed. Oh, of course not. Good, because some asshole in 1964 named Donald Russ Curry cut down the second oldest tree in the world, which was also a bristlecone pine what the called hell? Prometheus. Like he said he was doing it for science, like it was like his science project, project? He, was working, he was working on a project and he cut like too much of the tree and he cut the he tree killed down it. so basically his wikipedia entry is like donald russ curry is the <laughs> asshole that cut down the <laughs> oldest tree in the world way to Prometheus. go donnie yeah from the same location mm-hmm. of course his name would be donald <laughs> question two the eighth astrological sign in the zodiac the sun transits the sign on average from october 23rd to november 22nd what is the sign for this thing that stings that's a uh, scorpio it is a scorpio Scorpio is one of the three water signs, the others being Cancer and Pisces. I'm a Cancer. (laughs) According to Allure magazine, quote, like their celestial spirit animal, the scorpion, Scorpios lie in wait and strike when least expected. Life is a game of chess for these calculating water signs who are constantly plotting several steps ahead in order to orchestrate an eventual checkmate. This doesn't mean their intentions are necessarily nefarious. Scorpios simply know what they want and they aren't afraid to work hard and play the long game to get it. They never show their cards and their enigmatic nature is what makes them so seductive and beguiling. <laughs> I was like, allure. This oh is just like goodness. their description of of, the, of a, the Scorpio traits. You know what? See, now that's sexy. That's what I want. <laughs> you know what cancers are? It's like, you have big round faces. You love food. <laughs> like, you like to stay at home. You have a hard outer shell and a soft, soft middle. You love to cry. It's like, wow, guys. <laughs> Can't I be alluring and beguiling? Can't I be beguiling? Why do I have to be the mom of the Zodiac? (laughs) Whatever, it's not Uh, real. Anyway, please continue. Question three. Great Scott, the oldest angiosperm or fruiting plant ever documented died in 2011 in Zimbabwe at age 2,450. Scientifically, this long-lived native African tree species is an Andinsonia digitata, but it's also known as the upside-down tree or the monkey bread tree. By which other common name do we call this kind of tree? Okay, you said Great Scott. So I'm going to go with the Aberdeen tree. Nope, the... mm, Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle tree. Nope. Um, not Scotland, Scott. That oh, wasn't the clue. Oh, Scott, Scott, Stapp. Scott, it's the, it's the Creed tree. No? <laughs> I don't know what it you is. You can get there. Am you I going to get there. there? You can get there. Okay. Uh, Scott, um, I can't think of any other Scots. Sure you I can. I can? Scott. Like, why is Scott Stapp and his arms wide open stuck in my brain? Scott Stapp! Get out of here, Scott Stapp! <laughs> I don't know. Just tell me. Scott Stapp is arms right. wide opening the in my The answer of this, of this tree is the baobab. The baobab? Why? What does that have to do with Scott? Scott Baio. Oh, Scott Baio! <laughs> 
wasn't going to get there. I wasn't going to get there. All right. Thank you, though. No, that was an excellent, but I, was, I wasn't even close to Scott Baio. <laughs> The baobab tree is really, it's really freaking big and really freaking old. Okay. So their growth rate is determined by groundwater or rainfall and their maximum age seems to be about 1500 years. They have traditionally been valued as sources of food, water, health remedies, and places of shelter and are steeped in legend and superstition. It's been reported that nine of the 13 of Africa's oldest and largest baobab trees have died in the past decade. They were between 1100 and 2500 years old, appearing to be victims of climate change. Scientists speculate that warming temperatures have either killed the trees directly or have made them weaker and more susceptible to drought, diseases, fire, and wind. That's sad. Mm -hmm. They're so old. I know. Question four. Make sure you stay away from the lion's mane, cannonball, and for the love of God, the irukanji, or you'll be in a real jam. What kinds of things that sting are they? Jellyfish. Jellyfish. Yep. The sea wasp box jellyfish is the most deadly jellyfish in the world and one of the most deadly creatures on the planet. So they have 13, they have like 15 tentacles that may extend about 10 feet in length. Um, on each tentacle, there are about half a million darts. What? And these microscopic darts are full of venom. Each one could theoretically kill up to 60 people. What? What? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Each one? Yep. Each single so, one. Serial killer right here. Oh, my God. So the the talk, the venom is fast acting and it may cause cardiovascular arrest within a matter of minutes. Once a tentacle of the box jellyfish adheres to the skin, it pumps nematocysts with venom into the skin, causing the sting and agonizing pain, which may cause death even before the venom does because it leads to shock and it basically shuts you all down. Wait, well, you die from horrifying pain yeah. before the venom yeah. kills you? Yeah. What? Don't go in the water. Where everyone. are they? Where are Australia. they? Australia. Australia, oh, yeah. like that that region, like Indian this Ocean. Why, this is why the Lord did not give us fins. We have two lakes. We are not supposed to go in the sea. This is why. Do not go in the sea, everyone. So at least like if you're in the if you're in the ocean and they're talking about jellyfishes, like the sea wasp box jellyfish, it's kind of large. Like you could see it. You'd be like, ooh, jellyfish. Yeah. Um, the second deadliest one in the world is called the Irukanji jellyfish. It measures only 0.2 inches across no. and is nearly transparent. Oh no! <laughs> what? No. So it's the size of your it's the size of your pinky fingernail. It's nearly transparent, but its toxin is a hundred times stronger than that of a cobra. What? That seems like overkill. Like, what do you need that for, little what guy? Do you need that for? <laughs> Gosh, take it easy. Question five. I hate it. Question five. The oldest known living human planted tree in the world is a sacred fig uh, called the Jaya Srimati Bodhi. Planted in 288 BC and said to be the southern branch from the tree in India under which Lord Buddha attained enlightenment. This tree is located in what country whose flag depicts a gold lion with a sword? Is it Sri Lanka? It is Sri Lanka. Yes. I pulled that out of nowhere. Yeah. The Jaya Srimati Bodhi is 2,306 years old. Uh, by the way, we also covered Sri Lanka a little bit in the quiz portion of episode 44, MIA Civilizations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Question six. Not only is it a cartilaginous fish, which is now the target of a grudge, but it's the name of a controversial cellular phone surveillance device manufactured by Harris Corporation. What's this thing that stings? Is it a lionfish? No, shut up. What is it? Uh, is it... Um, I don't know what the app is. Is it an app? Is that what you just said? No? Uh, it's a device. Oh, a device. Oh, shoot. Cartilaginous fish. So, like a shark, but not. It's the target of a grudge. Target. A collective grudge. A I'd collective say. grudge? So, uh, mm, 
All of us in Virginia hate that. Something fish. Uh, the entire country of Cote d'Ivoire hates that. <laughs> What's a stinging fish? A stingy fish. Why can't I think of a stingy fish? I know fish that bite. That's a piranha, but that's not it. Uh, what is it? What is it? It's a stingray. Oh. <laughs> Everybody in Australia hates the stingray. I was so close. <laughs> so close. I was so close. You were very they don't close. Actually sting. You're like, what's what's a fish that stings? <laughs> I know. I'm so dumb. Uh, so one killed Steve Irwin in 2006. May he rest. Although that was only the second recorded death in Australian waters oh, since 1945 man. by a stingray. So it was just like really what a, a freak fluke. accident. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. And the other mimics a wireless carrier cell tower in order to force all nearby mobile phones and other cellular data devices to connect with it. Oh, that's a stingray. stingray. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. And Harris Corporation is here in Rochester. Oh, really? Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know Harris is still yeah. in here, but yeah. Question seven. The single largest living organism is a clonal colony of quaking aspen trees with a root system estimated to be more than 80,000 years old. Located in South Central Utah, not South Central China, what is the five letter name of this largest, oldest, and heaviest living organism in the world? So... It's not a, it's an aspen tree. It's a clonal colony of quaking aspen trees. Quaking aspen trees. But it has like a name. Like it has it was a name. A, like a, it was dubbed. Oh, jeez. Is it, can you give me a hint? It's five letters. <laughs> okay. Oh, shit. Um, D-A-V-I-D. David. <laughs> no, Correct. Moving this. on. Uh, it's Pando. Oh, yeah. No, I wasn't going to get that. Okay, so Pando, <laughs> I was just going to name men's names. <laughs> Pando is Latin for I spread. Um, they also sometimes call this the trembling giant. Mm. Unlike many other clonal colonies, the above ground trunks remain connected to each other by a single massive subterranean root system. This clonal colony, called Pando, encompasses 43 hectares, that's 106 acres, weighs nearly 6,000 metric tons, and has over 40,000 stems and trunks, which die individually and are replaced by new stems growing from its roots. The average age of Pando's stems is 130 years, as indicated by tree rings, and the roots are 80,000 years old. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Pando, everybody. Pando, one guy. It's over in Utah. Oh, Panda. Oh, dumb. Ah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question eight. A real stinging, true or false question. The queen honeybee does not have a stinger. I'm going to say true. It does not have a stinger. False. The queen does have a stinger, (gasps) but her stinger is not barbed, so she is able to sting repeatedly without dying. When a regular worker bee stings something, its stinger is ripped from its abdomen, Mm -hmm. so then it dies. Question nine. Most Americans know that our oldest and biggest trees are located in Sequoia National Park, California, and the President Tree happens to be the oldest known living sequoia there. Dedicated with this moniker in 1923, for which recently deceased person was this tree named? I'm going to go out on a limb because Teddy out Roosevelt... Out on a limb. Huh. hey uh, Teddy Roosevelt died in 1919, right? So I'm going to say Teddy Roosevelt. 
The answer is Warren G. Harding. Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to get Warren G. Harding. So he died in August 1923. And the tree was dedicated in his honor in September 1923. The president, located in Sequoia National Park, is the oldest known living giant sequoia at approximately 3,200 years of age. And as of 2012, the volume of its trunk measured at about 45,000 cubic feet with an additional 9,000 cubic feet of branches. Oh, my. Just giant, just freaking ginormous. Big, you can live inside of it. You could, but don't. But don't, please. Leave the leave him alone. Leave the trees alone. Mm -hmm. And finally, question ten: One of the few species of venomous mammals, the male version of this strange creature, has a spur on its hind foot that delivers a venom capable of causing severe pain to humans. What is the thing that stings? That is a platypus. It sure is. Yes. Although powerful enough to kill smaller animals like dogs, the venom is not lethal to humans, but the pain is so excruciating that the victim might be incapacitated. And for more on monotremes and other strange creatures, please check out episode eight, Strange Creatures. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Yeah. Do you notice that I sprinkle in all these callbacks and I'm like, here's where you should go if you should want to look up that thing. Yes. And then you yell at me when I do it for my episodes. <laughs> what? what do you mean I yell at you? I don't yell at you. You're like, oh, I see your, your, uh, your. If anything, I think I say, I always say it's very good because I think <laughs> all of our episodes are very good. They are very, they're all very good. They're all very good. I just don't remember what episode the you would the quiz was that you did Louise Bourgeois on. So I think it was the Elements episode. Was it Elements? Yeah. Okay, check out the Elements episode that Julia did. <laughs> that was like Louis two Bu- weeks ago. Yeah, that was yeah yeah. Um, it's very good. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, everyone. That was excellent. Thank you so much. Sorry, I didn't get uh, a you handful of them that I should have. You did Scott great. Bayo. Damn it. Stapp. That's your most famous Scott in your brain? <laughs> I don't know why Scott Stapp. Scott Stapp came in, he sat down, and he did not let any other Scots in. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> so oh. I wasn't getting anywhere close. Anyway, uh, um, if you want to tell me your favorite Scott... Um, <laughs> You can uh, email us at missinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at missinfopod. Uh, you can go to our uh, Facebook page, Misinformation, colon, Trivia Podcast. Um, and you can also, I don't know, just head on over to our website, com. You can stream us on our website and you can find us uh, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks for listening. No dicks this episode. None. Zero dicks. Just okay. when we mentioned that there aren't any at the beginning and oh. the end. Yeah, sorry. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Deserts are great. <laughs> stay, stay cool. Yeah, stay cool out there, everyone. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> oh, that's, that catchphrase doesn't work so much, I guess. No. Oh, Sorry. yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll try something else next oh, time. Okay, we'll do that. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.